Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the largest online repository of audiobooks with thousands of titles to choose from, including Audible originals you can't find anywhere else. With a subscription, you get one new audiobook each month, and you can start a free 30-day trial now at audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia. With each Audible ad, I like to include an audiobook recommendation, and today's is Arian's Alexander the Great, as it's called on Audible. Also called the Anabasis of Alexander, Arian's work is a Roman-era account of Alexander's wars with Persia at the end of the Achaemenid Empire and preserves some of the accounts of Alexander's generals. If you want an ancient script for an action movie, you could do a lot worse than Arian. So go to audibletrial.com historyofpersia and check it out today. 
welcome to the history of Persia, episode 22, Putting Out Fires. Sorry for the delay, everybody, but we're here now and that's what matters. Last time, I talked about the religion of the early Achaemenids and its recognizably Zoroastrian and non-Zoroastrian features, and the interplay between the different religious factors that have come down to us. And before that, there were two episodes where I covered the reign of King Bardia, Gomada, whatever it is, as I've taken to calling him. I discussed how he usurped his brother Cambyses' throne, and the reveal that he may have been an imposter all along by Darius. So today we're going to talk about Darius, which you'll probably notice pretty quickly I'm pronouncing differently now. I recently had a listener reach out and ask me to alter my pronunciation to match the modern Parsi and Persian pronunciations of the name. I'm pretty hesitant to do this with any of the Achaemenid kings, because all of their English transliterations are pronounced so, so much differently than they are in modern Persian and related languages and cultures. Cyrus came from the old Persian Kurash, Cambyses from Cambogia, and I promise it will only get worse when we reach names like Xerxes and Artaxerxes. The thing is, it's not quite so bad for Darius. Of course, no matter how you slice it, we're pretty far away from his old Persian name, the one that the king himself would actually have used, Darayavahush. As modern Persian and other Iranian languages developed, that name became Daryush or Darius. In ancient Greek, it was rendered as Dareos, spelled D-A-R-E-I-O-S, or if you prefer, Delta, Alpha, Rho, Epsilon, Iota, Omicron, Sigma. When the Romans translated that Greek into Latin, they wrote it as D-A-R-I-U-S, a spelling which we have inherited in English. But it's more of a modern phenomenon that we pronounce D-A-R as dare, and there are a whole bunch of other ways I've heard modern English speakers say it. Darius, Darius, Darius. Classical Latin would have been Darius, and easily elides back into Darius if you're not thinking about it and speaking quickly. So, to strike some sort of balance with what we're going to call our new king, I'm going to take my cues from ancient Rome and go with Darius. So who was this man? We know that he was one of the seven conspirators who banded together and overthrew Bardia. But what do we know about him before his sudden appearance in the realm of Persian power politics? Actually, more than you might expect. He was descended from a noble house that traced its ancestry back to the ancient leader Achaemenes. His father, Histaspes, called Vishtaspa in Persian, was a Persian noble, and possibly a satrap under Cyrus and Cambyses, who accompanied Cyrus on his final campaign. His mother was Rhodogune, a prominent noblewoman, and he had three brothers, Artabanus, Artanes, and Artaphernes, as well as a sister, possibly named Ardushnamuya. All of his family members would, of course, rise to positions of influence and power once Darius became king. We even know approximately when he was born. Working back from the date of his death, which is documented to October of 486 BCE, with the king 64 years old at the time of death, so work backwards and Darius must have been born around 550 BCE, right about when Cyrus was winning his first revolt against Media. 
so Darius grew up alongside the growing Persian Empire. A few much later sources say that Darius was a quiver-bearer to Cyrus during his final campaign, but seeing as this isn't supported in the more contemporaneous sources, that might be a story made up to strengthen Darius's ties to Cyrus. We do know, though, from Herodotus, that he was a spear-bearer under Cambyses. Whether that is meant to imply a close personal connection with the king, or just that he was one of the Arshtibara, the unit of spearmen pulled from the nobility, is unclear. As a spearbearer, Darius was with Cambyses in Egypt, and was in the army when Cambyses died. He was not part of the original conspiracy to topple Bardia. According to Herodotus, the conspiracy was launched when Otanes, another member of the Achaemenid clan, maybe a distant cousin to Darius, got three other nobles, Aspothenes, Gabrias, and Intafernes together, and Gabrias got another man named Megabizus on it, while Aspathenes went and got the nobleman Hidarnes. Darius, supposedly, joined them of his own accord after they had started plotting. Regardless, Darius seems to have had the best royal credentials, whether that was a legitimate dynastic claim, more troops at his disposal, or even just that he was the most charismatic. His six fellows agreed that he would become king after they killed Bardia. Though Darius and the Greek sources uniformly claim that it was those seven personally challenging Bardia, like I talked about back in episode 20, some historians doubt that they could possibly have taken down a popular ruler in his own palace and have suggested that the Seven rallied an army and attacked Bardia's forces in addition to their attack on the fortress in Media. But ultimately, there's very little evidence for anything about any of these stories, and in the Behistun inscription, Darius alludes to that idea, but again, no evidence. According to the inscription, that leaves us off on September 29th, 522 BCE, right after Darius and the conspirators killed Bardia. That brings me to the second topic in today's grab bag of an episode, dates. And I feel like I need to talk about this now because there are going to be more firm dates in this episode than probably any other episode in the podcast for a long time. There have been a couple of instances where I've been able to give a firm date before. The Babylonian Chronicle tells us that just as I'm recording right now, it's Cyrus the Great Day on October 29th, the anniversary of his entry into Babylon. The Behistun inscription is chock full of dates, like Gomada being proclaimed king on the 1st of July, 522, and dying on September 29th of that year. Well, Behistun loves its dates, so we can just keep going. Most of the actual dates are hardly important, but I want to point them out because we so rarely get day-by-day -day accounts of ancient events. Of course, the Achaemenid Persians weren't using an adapted form of the Roman calendar thousands of years before it was invented, and they certainly weren't counting BC backwards until they reached Jesus. The old Persian calendar in use by Darius was modeled on the ancient Egyptian calendar. The Egyptians used a solar calendar much like ours, guided particularly by the position of the star we call Sirius in the night sky. That calendar had 12 months of 30 days each, and a 5-day intercalary period for a total of 365 days a year, or 366 in some years. Sound familiar? The Egyptians were really good at these sort of calculations, 
and the Persians just changed the name and inserted some of their own traditions into the cycle. The number of the year was typically determined based on how long the king had been ruling. So instead of saying 521 BC, they would say in the first year of King Darius. The 12 months of the Persian calendar are as follows, with each month straddling two of our modern months, and I have no doubt that now I will start pronouncing Old Persian flawlessly. Adu Kanaisha starts the year in March and bleeds into April, then comes Thuravahara, then Thaigrakish, then Garmapada, and Turnabazish, Karbashiash, Bagayadish, and Verkazana, before Asiyadia, Anamaka, Thwayova, and finally Vyaksana. This existed alongside the more complex Babylonian calendar that made use of both the Earth's travel around the Sun and the Moon's travel around the Earth to form a dating system, but also got quite close to the real 365.25 days, etc. Fortunately, we can take those months and days, and the year they're dated to, especially when they refer to eclipses or other big stellar events, and come up with pretty precise dates in our modern calendar. And it's those dates that I'm using when I say something happened on a day and a specific month in antiquity. And as I said, the Behistun inscription has lots of dates. It gives a blow-by-blow account of Darius's victories in the year immediately following his ascension. True to character, it does exclude any battles he lost, as the whole point of the inscription is to build up Darius and cover up any perceived weaknesses or illegitimacies. The first section, about the reign, treachery, and downfall of Gomada the Magi, reads like a narrative story. It has epic undertones and follows basic plot structure. The second and third columns of the text read more like someone compiled Darius's war correspondence by region and was told to make them sound monumental, which is probably more or less what happened. Because events are lumped together by region, it can be hard to put together a sequence of events because the year isn't always mentioned. Of course, almost all of this happened in the first year of Darius. In one part of the column, a rebel king is executed in May, and further down, he was campaigning in December. So that December is probably the December before the execution, but it does get a little bit confusing. Fortunately, the Behistun inscription also depicts all of the Lyre kings chained together in the order that they were defeated, so we can reconstruct a chronology from there. These events are also interesting for a lot of reasons outside of just being a crazed and action-packed part of the narrative. They shed light on some of the internal and provincial politics of the early Persian Empire that are almost always lost to us. They're proof that the early Persians were still working on synthesizing an empire out of their many conquered territories. And most unusually, this is one of the few events that we know almost exclusively through a Persian source. Herodotus mentions a revolt in Babylon, but it doesn't give most of the details. For whatever reason, the Greek authors did not write about the revolts against Darius in 522 and 521. There are other hints that Herodotus was aware of the discord following Darius's ascension, but he didn't record much about it. No sooner had Darius taken the throne than rebellions were breaking out already. All of the pressure and frustration that Bardia had been keeping a lid on suddenly broke through. 
Darius killed Bardia and took over on September 29th, 522. On October 3rd, we already see the first Babylonian document dated to the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar III. Babylonia had officially launched a revolt against Darius. Simultaneously, our new king was facing a revolt in Elam, where a man called Asina had declared himself king of Elam. Darius got lucky here because Asina was only successful until the Persians showed up. Darius sent an envoy, presumably with some soldiers, and the Elamites delivered Asina to the Persians in chains to be executed. He was, uh, let's say, less lucky in Babylon, where the Behistun inscription says, quote, And a certain Babylonian named Nadintu Bel, the son of Kinzer, raised a rebellion in Babylon. He lied to the people, saying, I am Nebuchadnezzar, the son of Nabonidus. Then did all the province of Babylonia go over to Nadintu Bel, and Babylonia rose in rebellion. He seized on the kingdom of Babylonia. Here we see the first of many examples of the rebel kings claiming descent from dynasties that had been conquered by Cyrus. In this case, Nadintu Bel, presumably a Babylonian nobleman unhappy with foreign rule, claimed legitimacy as a younger son of Nabonidus, the last independent Babylonian king, and took the throne name Nebuchadnezzar III. Of course, much like Gomada and Bardia, many authors have pointed out that if we think Darius is lying about one false king, we can't discount that he might lie about another. The timeline works out, with this revolt coming only 17 years after Nabonidus was dethroned by Cyrus. He would have been older for a rebel leader, but Nidintu Bel could easily have been one of the younger sons from Nabonidus. The thing is, it becomes kind of implausible that all of these rebels were who they really said they were. It's just an awful lot of surprise dynasts, and a kind of a stretch for Darius to delegitimize all of them in the exact same way. But if you go the other way, and say that most of them were liars, then it became possible to wrap up the couple of legitimate claims with all the liars too. Darius seems to have spent most of October and November consolidating his position and planning to deal with the rebels in Babylon. It's in that period that he also probably had Asina of Elam executed for his attempt to rebel. He moved on Babylonia in early December, and that tells us that this was considered an emergency. December is so far outside the normal military campaign season in antiquity, at its longest, that usually ran from late April to early October. After that, the weather was less likely to cooperate, and it gets cold, it rains more, and men need to go back home to their farms for harvesting crops. It might be that the harvest is what delayed Darius' response so much to get to Babylon. An army is great, but only if you can feed it. Darius marched into Babylonia in pursuit of the rebels, only to find his path blocked by the Tigris River, already swollen and impassable on foot by the early winter rains. They built pontoon boats and rafts from inflated animal skins and slowly moved soldiers, horses, and the baggage trains across the river before they could proceed toward Babylon. The Persian royal army faced off with the Babylonians on December 13, 522 BCE, and routed them back toward Babylon itself. This doesn't seem to be the main Babylonian army, though, because five days later, Nadintu Bel himself rode out with his army and faced Darius on the eastern bank of the Euphrates River, near a city called Zazana. 
It was another Persian victory and a gruesome defeat for the Babylonians. According to the Behistun inscription, the Babylonians were pushed back into the river, with many men being swept away by the current. Nadintu Bel managed to flee southward to Babylon, protected by a detachment of cavalry. And now I'm forced to try and figure out where to fit in Herodotus's account of the rebellion in Babylonia. Herodotus just kind of inserts a story about a siege of rebellious Babylon, but there were historically two Babylonian revolts against Darius, and Herodotus doesn't distinguish between them. In all likelihood, he combined both and fictionalized some of the details to create a narrative. But it's in the record, so I do want to address it. I think I'll do it here because Herodotus implies that Darius was present in his account, and in the Behistun inscription, Darius sent a general in his stead for the second revolt. According to Herodotus, the Persians were unable to take the foremost city of the ancient Near East. Fortunately for Darius, Zopiros, son of Megabizos, one of the seven conspirators against Gomada, was with this army in Mesopotamia. Zopiros was clever, and apparently gruesomely loyal to his new king. Without even consulting Darius, Zopiros cut off his own nose and ears. Yes, he sliced off bits of his own face of his own accord to help win a battle. Darius was understandably shocked and grossed out by this, but Zopiros explained his plan. He was going to go out to the gates of Babylon and pretend to be a deserter and a traitor punished by Darius with mutilation. The Babylonians brought him into the city, and their leaders saw a grotesque and mutilated Persian noble. Unable to think of how someone of high rank could have ended up that way without committing some sort of crime, they bought the lie hook, line, and sinker. They put Zopiros in charge of their defenses, thinking that he would exploit his knowledge of the Persian army. Instead, the son of Megabizos weakened Babylon's protections, threw open the gates, and led Babylonian troops under his command into an ambush, allowing Darius to take the city. Darius then made Zopiros the new satrap of Babylon, according to Herodotus. There is just so much going on here. First of all, the whole plan is suspect because of how bizarre and unlikely the story of self-mutilation is. It's also suspiciously similar to a story about Odysseus infiltrating Troy in the Iliad. We also have no record of a Babylonian satrap who could have been called Zaporos in Greek. It's possible that the son of Magabizos was in some other office in Babylon at the time, but really, who knows? It's a bizarre story, and some of the only information about these events to come out of the Greek corpus at all. Back in the Behistun inscription, Darius cuts to the chase and says that, by the will of Ahura Mazda, he took Babylon and executed Nadintu Bel. Then, Bardia, the son of Cyrus the Great, launched a revolt in Persia. Wait, hold up. You did hear that right. In fact, he reports that all hell broke loose with this line. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch, and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. 
Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today, today. King Darius says, While I was in Babylon, these provinces revolted against me. Persia, Elam, Media, Assyria, Egypt, Parthia, Margiana, and Satagadea, and Saka. That's more than half the empire in open revolt, and doesn't even count the tacit disobedience of the satrap Oroites in Anatolia, or anyone else who didn't take a direct military action against Darius. I discussed Oroites in Anatolia back in episode 18, The Tyrant and the Kings. Traditionally, most authors talking about this follow the Behistun inscription in talking about things one region at a time. I'm going to take a different approach and jump from one region to the next and then back again in chronological order, just to try and show how chaotic these events were. A map with as many of the locations and battles as I know will be on historyofpersiapodcast.com. The most striking, and the next one to see any action, was Persia. Sometime while Darius was in Babylon, a Persian noble of some sort declared that Bardia had neither been killed by Cambyses nor by Darius and the Six Allies. In fact, he had been Bardia all along and was going to claim his throne now. Darius says that this man was actually a Persian from the city of Tarava, named Vayazdata. Apparently, the rebel king felt secure enough in his own position to go on the offensive first, because the earliest action we know about him was on the 29th of December, 522, when his forces clashed with Darius' loyalists led by the satrap Vivana in Eracosia, a satrap called Havatish in Old Persian, located in southeastern Afghanistan. They fought a battle over the fortress of Kapisha Kanish, near modern Kandahar, where the Persian rebels were repulsed by Vivana's satrapal forces. Just two days later, in the province of Assyria, thousands of miles away, a battle was fought around Mount Izala, roughly modern Mardin in southeast Turkey. Interestingly, even though it is identified as Assyrian territory, the battle there was part of the Armenian Revolt. It seems that what exactly constituted Armenia at this point might not have been well-defined as the Armenians themselves were relative newcomers to the region since the fall of Urartu, which I discussed all the way back in episode 1. 
We still have references to Urartu as a place in the Persian period, and Urartian names still pop up, but are sometimes called Armenians. I think that we're seeing in this period the gradual assimilation of Urartu into a new Armenian place and culture. Regardless of who exactly was rebelling around Mount Azala, Darius sent a commander named Fomisa to deal with them, which might imply that they were some of the first to rebel if Darius had time to send a general to face them so promptly. They must have mobilized before Darius took Babylon for a Persian detachment to have made it there in time. Of course, Darius proclaims that Vomisa was victorious in battle, but the Persian offensive against the Armenian rebels also stalled, or at least saw no victories until May, almost five full months after that initial battle. So it seems the Armenians might have put up significant resistance. However, the Armenians and or Urartians did not declare a new king for themselves, but seem to have been tied to the revolt in Media, which was the most troubling and hardest-fought theater of Darius's early wars. Media had revolted under the leadership of a Median noble named Fravartish. That's the same name transliterated into Greek as Phaortes in Herodotus's account of early Median history from back in episode 2. However, to help keep the two straight, and because this Fravartish is only recorded in the Behistun inscription, I'll use the Iranian version here. Pravartish claimed legitimacy as a member of the House of Syaxares, the Median king who helped Babylon overthrow the Assyrian Empire. For that story, see episode 3. Though Darius calls him a liar, this one seems like one of the more plausible claims made by the so-called liar kings. We know that Cyrus spared Astyages and other members of the Median royal family, and Darius doesn't name Favartish's father the same way he does when discrediting other would-be monarchs like Nidintu Bel. Apparently, Darius didn't have the manpower with him in Babylon to march on Media himself when he found out about this revolt, but he was able to send orders to Hidarnes, another one of the seven conspirators against Bardia, to lead a different army into Media and put down the revolt. They encountered and fought the Medes at a city called Marush, where they were victorious, but evidently it was a hard-fought victory because the Persian army did not pursue the rebels, but instead encamped at a site called Kampanda, where they waited for Darius himself to join them with his own contingent, which he did a few weeks later in February of 521. The rebellions in Media and Persia certainly raise a question of who exactly was in the armies of Darius when he was sending them out across his new empire. The Behistun inscription repeatedly refers to the army of the Medes and Persian people that Darius was fielding in all these battles, but it seems like he might have had trouble gathering reinforcements from either Media or Persia at this time. As of early 521, the Persian empire founded by Cyrus the Great was being run by a very distant cousin based in Babylon. The general hypothesis that I've seen is that Darius was commanding what remained of the army Cambyses had taken to Egypt. These would have been whatever veteran soldiers Darius and the other six conspirators were able to rally to their cause in Syria before moving on Bardia in Media. Maybe reinforced by whatever conscripts they could dig up in Syria and the Levant, where they were still loyal to Darius at the outset, and probably some mercenaries from Greece or elsewhere. Persia and Media formed the traditional base for military recruitment, 
and their loss might explain why Darius was unable to gather a large force and attack Media at the outset, while still managing to put out all of the other fires. Of course, we also only know about the major victories, so we probably miss out on some of the small skirmishes between loyalists and rebels in the revolting provinces, or other instances when Darius supporters behind enemy lines may have contributed to his armies. With Persia and Media in revolt, Darius's territory was bisected, with half of it in the former Babylonian Empire, and roughly another half in the east, unable to send reinforcements as they were contending with rebels on their own borders. That leads nicely into the next battle, which was another in Eracosia on February 21st. The rebel Persian army sent by Vayasdata to attack Eracosia struck again, this time meeting Satrap at a site called Gondutava, where they were more thoroughly defeated than their first encounter back in December. Vivana's army marched after the rebel commander and his cavalry when they fled towards one of Vivana's own estates called Arshada. When the Eracosian army caught up to them, they overran the remainder of the rebel Persian army, executing their officers and capturing the commander. After that defeat, Vayasdata's ambitions in Eracosia were quashed, and the province was firmly in Darius' loyalist hands. Apparently, sometime in the preceding months, a revolt had erupted in the eastern satrapy that controlled the regions of Parthia and Hyrcania, where Darius's own father Histospes had been the reigning satrap. It's not clear if Histospes was the satrap under Cyrus, Cambyses, and Bardia, or if he was only appointed after Darius took power. Either way, a contingent of his subjects and subordinates rebelled in support of the Median Fravartish, but on the 8th of March, Histospes led a royalist army against the rebels at the Parthian town called Vishpozatish, where he defeated pro-Mede partisans and restored order in his territory. At least in the Behistun inscription, there was a lull in the action for most of March and all of April in our calendar, maybe providing time for everyone to do some spring planting and celebrate Nowruz, the Persian New Year festival. Or maybe just because there were no decisive battles in that time period. We can also see that there was generally a halt in major engagements during the winter months. The deeper into winter things get, the more treacherous the weather, and the harder it is to maintain a military campaign. It seems that Hidardes and Darius dug in and waited out the season in Media, with Vomisa doing the same in Armenia, and Pravartish and the Median rebels choosing to do that as well. Strangely, Vayasdata was left in charge of Parsa, the royal home province, all through this period, with the only major battles after December taking place in Arachosia, which was still actively being invaded, and presumably pillaged by the rebel Persians, and another battle in Parthia Hyrcania, where Histospes put down a fresh revolt before it could grow its roots. When the campaign season of 521 came in May, the war was back on with renewed fury. Darius personally led an army in Media against Fravartish, and met the rebel Medes at a city called Kundarush, about 90 kilometers or 56 miles southwest of Abadana, in the modern Kermanshah province of Iran. In the later Parthian period, that name became Kongavar, which it remains today. Fravartish was routed and fled to Raga, the town that would centuries later develop into Tehran, the modern Iranian capital. Darius sent a detachment of his own army to put an end to the Median rebellion, and when they caught up to Fravartish, they killed his primary supporters and took him captive. 
Wanting to make an example of this frustrating rebel that had inspired so much rebellion from Armenia to Parthia, Darius had Frivartish mutilated, and displayed in a manner more reminiscent of Ashurbanipal than Cyrus. The Median leader had his nose, ears, tongue, and one eye removed, and then was chained out in front of Darius's palace at Ekbadana for a few days for all to see, before being crucified and put on display in the Median capital. The end of the rebellion in Media came just in time for another, unsuccessful Elamite revolt. Martia, the son of Zinzakrish from a city in Persia called Kuganaka, declared himself the king of Elam and took the traditional Elamite throne name Umanish. Unfortunately for Martia, the Elamites were still afraid of Darius and didn't want the same treatment as Frivartish, so they turned against him and killed Martia for Darius before a battle could even be fought. Sometime in all of this chaos around Media, the Persians also marched into Sagarsha, now part of northern Iraq, and they put down a revolt there. It appears that this may have been after the defeat of Frivartish and Martia, because it appears in that order at Behistun, was in between Media and the army's next stop in Armenia, and the Sagarshan king, Kizatakma, also claimed legitimacy as a member of the House of Syaxares. Maybe this was a relative of Fravartish, or maybe it wasn't, but Kisatakma was the next to feel Darius's wrath. Led by a general named Takmaspada, the Persian army defeated the would-be king in battle. Kisatakma was captured and punished in exactly the same way as Fravartish, before being crucified in the Sagarshan capital of Arbela, near the modern Iraqi Kurdish city of Duhak. From there, the Persians went off to reconquer Armenia. Now, Armenia had been stalling since the early days of the conflict in December of 522. Once Frivartish was dealt with, Darius was able to send a relief army into Media headed by one Dadarshi, which in the ancient context is not just the modern nation of Armenia, but also most of southern Georgia, parts of northern Syria and Iraq, and a lot of eastern Turkey. The Armenian rebels, who had allied themselves with the deposed Frivartish, marched out to meet the advancing Persians and clashed at a location called Zuza, not to be confused with the later Iranian capital Susa, where they were defeated and turned back on May 20th. Though we don't know where Zuza is, we might imagine that it was somewhere in southern Armenia, where the Persians may have encountered resistance as they marched north out of Arbella. Meanwhile, a thousand kilometers away, or 620 miles, Darius was finally able to turn his military attention to Parsa itself, but Darius chose not to embark on the campaign personally, instead choosing to remain in Ekbadana where he recalled the full force of his available army, probably to reassess his position and direct the war as it reopened on multiple fronts. He sent an army led by a general called Artavadia south from Media to put down rebels in Persia, led by that Vayasdata guy who was claiming to be Bardia for some reason. Darius's army clashed with the rebels at a town called Raqqa, which is distinct from Raga, where the Median revolt ended. They were victorious there, but Vayasdata was not captured, and for whatever reason, there wasn't another major battle noted in Persia for the next month and a half. Maybe there were battles, but Darius lost and didn't record them, or maybe Artavadia was consolidating his position, who knows. Like Zuza, we don't know where Raqqa was located, 
but it's probably reasonable to think it was located in northern Parsa on the route the army would have taken south from Ecbatana. The next few battles were in Armenia. On May 30th, Dadarshi's army was advancing northward through the Old Kingdom of Urartu when they defeated the Armenians at a place called Tigra. And on June 11th, the Persian commander Vomisa, who had been stranded in Armenia since December, fought his own battle against the rebels at Altiyara, and Dardish brought another defeat down on the Armenians at a fortress called Uyama nine days later. From the little bit of geography that we can be certain of, it seems like the two Persian armies could have been pushing northwest and northeast respectively during the campaign of 521, maybe trying to meet in the middle somewhere. After that series of victories, though, both Dadarshi and Vomisa halted operations and waited for Darius himself to arrive and lead the final operations in Armenia. It seems that whatever skirmishes were fought, things were mostly settled by then. We don't hear any more about it at the Histoon, and I'm sure Darius would have wanted to have any personal victories immortalized if they were worth mentioning. For his service, Dadarshi was apparently made satrap of Bactria, the largest and most significant province in most of modern Afghanistan. The final battle against rebels who supported the Median Fravartish took place on July 11th in Parthia. Apparently, Darius's father had been in charge of Raga after the final Median defeat, and the Parthians took that as an opportunity to rebel again. Histospes marched back east and defeated the rebels at Patigrabana, which is probably the same place as modern Mashhad in northeast Iran. That put an end to not just the Parthian rebels, but the last vestige of the Median revolt. And I think it's worth looking at the scope of Favartish's rebellion. Not only does Darius not name his father, giving a little bit of credence to the idea that he may have actually been a legitimate heir to the Median throne, but the territories associated with the supposed Median Empire rebelled in his favor. Under Syaxeres and Astyages, Median rule expanded out from Media to control most of northern Assyria, Urartu slash Armenia, Parthia, and parts of eastern Iran and south-central Asia. The revolt looks an awful lot like the band was trying to get back together, or maybe this is where later authors got the idea that Media exerted direct control over Parthia and Hyrcania in its heyday. We're still just less than two generations removed from Cyrus the Great dethroning Astyages. There were certainly people in the former Median kingdom who remembered that, and probably even resented it, and I think we might find an expression of that in these events. Less than a week after Parthia was recaptured for good, Persia fell back into royal hands as well. On July 15th, just over a year after the first supposed Bardia had claimed the throne, the second was defeated. After his initial defeat, Vayasdata had fled to Paishiyavada, the same city near Pasargadai where Bardia had first proclaimed his intention to lead the empire. When Artavardia arrived with the pro-Darius army, they fought the rebels at a nearby mountain called Perga. Vayasdata and his most prominent supporters were captured, and once Darius arrived, they were crucified in the nearby city Uvadikaya, near or maybe part of the future royal capital of Persepolis. These guys weren't chained up and mutilated on display like Pravartish, but instead they were dispatched quickly and in an urban center en masse, which indicates a stronger punishment is probably up to the eye of the beholder. Finally, things were starting to wind down. The situation was starting to look up for Darius. 
the most widespread revolt was done. He had recaptured the home province, the eastern provinces were peaceful again, and the remaining resistance he knew about was passive. Of course, it was not to last. And within a month, another province was back in open revolt, but we don't hear about any major military action again for a few months. So this seems like a good point to take a break, and next time I'll pick right back up where we left off on August of 521. There will be more revolts and rebellion in the early years of Darius's reign. Next week, as in just seven days from today, I'll have a new bonus episode up on Patreon for patrons who give their support to the show there. The November bonus episode is all about the weapons and equipment of the Persian Empire, and October's bonus was about the narrative of the Bronze Age collapse. December's is going to be my take on the movie 300, so if any of that sounds like it's interesting to you, it's just one of several benefits available to patrons, and I'll put a link to Patreon in the episode description, or you can go to patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Until then, you can get more resources like maps, the Achaemenid family tree, my bibliography, and some other things on the website, historyofpersiapodcast.com. You can contact me and support the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's the History of Persia podcast and at History of Persia. And if you want to get in touch, you can do that there or use my email, historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com or the contact page on the website. If you really want to support the show, there's nothing better than leaving a review and sharing things with your friends. Tell people about the show if you think they'd be interested in it. That is the number one way that an independent podcast like this will grow. So please, if you want to help, that is the way to do it. And until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts 
to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.